the main thing that does constantly shift the paradigm is like continuously and always being in the work of understanding both yourself and understanding your place in the world and understanding how you relate to other people. Welcome to Open Heart Raw Story, the podcast, spotlighting the raw, honest stories of everyday people leading extraordinary lives. Tune in weekly to hear special guests share and openly disclose their challenges and traumas, along with the pivotal shifts they made to transform their lives, step into their power, and inspire the lives of others. These are the stories that epitomize the hero's journey and stand as living proof that deep healing and transformations are possible. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Open Heart Raw Story, the podcast where we spotlight the raw and honest stories of everyday people leading extraordinary lives. On this episode, I am so grateful to have my soul sister on here. She is one of the main reasons why I became a yoga teacher. So you guys got to listen up. She is a master yoga teacher and owner of Luna and Soul Yoga Collective that brings together teachers and healers who are dedicated to offering practices that are inclusive, affirming, and supportive. She is also a doula, wife to her partner, Lauren, and mother of two beautiful sons. And in my opinion, she is a badass in every sense of the word and a loving force of nature. Please welcome everyone, Beck Gaffman Landini. Yay! Oh my God, that was such a beautiful intro. (laughs) I feel like I could hardly live up to it. It was so good. (laughs) Well, you know what? I have to give credit where credit is due. And my God, you've been doing so much, especially this year and last year in the pandemic. So yeah, I got to give praise where praise is due. So it is all well-deserving and then some. So yeah, welcome. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. Uh, I'm excited for this conversation. I'm also like a little nervous for this conversation. Like for, right off the bat, I know we're going to get into some, some big stuff. So I'm like, I'm like, let me gird my loins. <laughs> I, know. I hear you. I hear you. I'm holding your hand every step of the way. And, you know, it could be a little unnerving, but at the end of the day, I think your story is going to be a model of courage and hope for someone else that's listening. So you're doing oh, some, some big things there. Cool. So for the listeners, um, Beck and I have known each other, I would say, what, close to five, six years, maybe? I feel like maybe it's shorter or longer. I, You know, time is an elusive thing. Um, and the way that we met is I, I actually took her yoga class in the very beginning stages of my practice. And she was the one to truly open my eyes to a type of yoga that was so inviting, so like soul nourishing and a true practice of owning and becoming more of yourself. And last year, um, I had the privilege of working with her on birthing and expanding her ongoing social justice panel discussion called Uplift at her yoga studio. So it's just such an honor to have you here and an honor to really share your full story on this podcast. Thank you. I feel like I knew right from the moment that you walked into class, I was like, I like her. (laughs) It's like, we're going to be friends. Yeah. Soul recognizes soul, you know, like attracts like. So that's what I'm all about. So we're going to start from the top, you know, and I call this section the cocoon. So let's, let's talk about your childhood, the good, the bad, the in-between. Yeah. 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 So, um, my childhood. I feel like I'm in therapy right now. Everybody should have a yoga teacher and a therapist. Uh, so this will feel like a little bit like therapy. Um, my childhood, uh, gosh, it was like so long ago, but I would, I have to say like, I had, you know, like a pretty, you know, from the outside, like good childhood. Like I, you know, I have two living parents, um, you know, we're in lower, you know, middle class. So, you know, for me, for most of my childhood, I was also like, I was an only child until I was eight years old almost. So I like really had like the, the, I had, had the game on lock. I had, uh, you know, like two parents who doted on me, spent all their time on me. Um, and you know, have had extended family that live near us and, 
you know, had like a pretty, like uh, a pretty uneventful childhood, or I guess like in terms of my experience, like as a child, it was pretty uneventful. Mm-hmm. And then it was only like when I became older and I kind of like learned on what was going on, like outside of myself that I realized like it probably actually wasn't that of an uneventful childhood, but I didn't know it at the time. And I feel like, you know, my parents did a really good job of making sure like that I didn't really know what was going on outside myself. Um, and in some ways that was really great. And in some ways that like kind of fucks you up when you get, when you become an adult, cause you like look back at your childhood and you're like, what was real? <laughs> what was true? Same, same. I feel like a lot of times as, as I was coming into my adolescence and, you know, I was introduced to trauma, I would say like 11 years old. And I always say like, it's like my house of cards fell down. Like my, and I knew I was like, holy shit, like my rose colored glasses are off and I really get to see the bad directly interface with it. And I was so unequipped to even deal with it. And my parents always say like, you know, your child, we needed to shun you away from that. We didn't want to expose you to that. But then the fact that I was exposed to it so quickly, I was like, I'm, I'm, I'm ill-prepared. I don't even know how to deal with this right now. So. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I have to say like, you know, I think that like, you know, as parents and now being a parent, you know, you really like want to, I really want to always like shield my kids from stuff. But I think I've learned from having that happen to me that I'm like, oh, actually like it is far more healthy for them to see people struggle for them to know what's going on for them to know the truth than it is for me to shield them from that to the point where they're not going to know how to cope with it. And they don't have good modeling of what it's like for adults to deal with hard shit. Um, and so they're not going to be able to have that model. If they don't have that modeled for them, they're not going to grow up with the skills to do that. And that's kind of how I felt about my childhood is I was like, Oh, I don't actually have like the skills to deal with like real life issues because I've had these kind of like what you said, like rose colored glasses on about like so much. And I think that if like looking back, I was like, if my parents had been square with me about a lot of stuff, um, it probably would have given me a lot more tools in my tool belt to like cope with kind of like being more in the real world. I hear you. I hear you. And as you were maturing, like how was your relationship with your parents and how did it sort of, um, you know, evolve as you were getting older? You know, um, adults are, you know, when we're kids, when we're little, we kind of think as of the adults in our life as these um, infallible giants, as these like kind of um, superheroes. Mm -hmm. Um, And then as we get older, we start to see like, oh shit, no, they're just people. Ah, They're just, they're just people like everyone. Oh no, they have like flaws. They do, you know, whatever. And I think that like, as I got older and I started to have like more issues with you know, my coping mechanisms and, you know, just for like a little background, like some of the stuff that was going on when I was a kid that I didn't really understand or know about was like, I had a learning disorder that like my parents didn't share with me that I had a learning disorder. I was just kind of like, had to go to like OT therapy. Um, but they didn't explain like what it was. I was just like, okay, like, here we go. Um, and like not knowing that and not knowing that about myself. Then when I was, when I got older, I was like, what is wrong with me? Like, why does my brain work this way? Like, what the hell is wrong with me? Uh, There's something wrong with me. And instead of my parents, like sharing with me that information, they shielded me from it. So when I got older, I didn't know how to like integrate that part of myself. Um, And so, you know, like as I got older and I learned those things about myself, I was like, oh, the reason why my parents didn't share that with me is because they were afraid. If par- and if parents are, if my parents were afraid, that means they're human beings, right? And and so I kind of like as I got older, I kind of learned that stuff about my parents. You know, like um, my mom had a lot of trauma in her own life. Um, going back, you know, my mom comes from a an immigrant family, from a Jewish family, and she had trauma going back like generations that was still unresolved with her. And I felt a lot of that stuff growing up with her, like that reverberated in like who I became. And, you know, as I got older, I was like, do I want to deal with this? Do I want to be the person that stops this? Because doing things like hiding a learning disorder from my kids is like, that's not how I want to raise my own kids. Right. Like 
So it, you know, even though when I was really little, my parents, my relationship with my parents was really good and it still is, it still is good. We actually live in a house across the street from my parents, but that's a podcast for a different day. <laughs> that's a different podcast. Um, it could be the part two of this one. Kind yeah. of- <laughs> What's it like to live across the street from your parents? <laughs> part two. Um, so yeah, even though like as a really little kid, my relationship with them was really good. Um, I feel like a lot of the reasons why it was really good is because I didn't know what was going on. And then as I got older, I was like, oh, it's, it's taken quite a turn. Um, because also, you know, as I got older, I realized my parents didn't have a lot of coping mechanisms. Right. Right. And similarly, I think, you know, and to your earlier point, Um, you know, we always revere our parents as like these, like people that can't do any wrong. They can't make any mistakes, you know, just because they're our first idols, right? They're, they're the ones that birthed us. And then when we find out they're human, it's like a struck to the chest. It's like, what? Like, who is this person? And it's, and I keep saying this on earlier episodes, especially, you know, cause my dad and I, we were, we're kind of evolving into this new relationship of daughter and dad where it's like two adults are speaking to each other versus you know someone inferior to someone that's superior and I literally had to get arrive at the space where I had to say to myself I have to accept the human and love the human that my father is not the father that I always wanted him to be yeah yeah it took me years to do that kind of work you know that's like been a big part of my yoga journey. That's been a big part of my being a mama journey. That's been a big part of my healing journey with my, you know, own mental health is I, I have to have, I have to retell myself a lot of these stories with like love and compassion for my mom being a human being, right. For my dad being a human being. Um, and that they're like, when I reframe those stories with that, and I really look at those stories with compassion, I tell a very different story and it helps me kind of like, accept their limitations. Yep. Right. Like they did the best with like what, what tools they had in their own toolbox. Absolutely. Yeah. And I that's think, not, that's not true for everyone, but it happens to be true in, in my case. Yeah. I think like in a, in a really even fucked up way, like, and I say this with caution sometimes it's like people are only doing the best that they could. Like even yeah. if it means their coping mechanisms are destructive to themselves or even destructive to them others. In their mind, they're like, this is the best that I can do. Like, it's it's like a crazy concept. And, you know, and sometimes it's just like, all right, this is the best you can do. Fine. Um, but that work and breaking the cycles that you're doing right now is so imperative to not only your growth, but your growth of your children and how they see you. So I know that you're doing, I know you're doing the damn thing. So kudos to you. Yeah. Thank you. So in your younger years, like, how did you, like, see yourself as a person? Like, how did Beck see Beck when she looked herself in the mirror while she was growing up? Yeah, I think, like, I saw myself uh, the way that, like, I think a lot of young people see themselves as, you know, especially, like, in our generation. It's funny because I was just having this conversation with a couple of friends. But I think in our generations especially, um, we were the generation of, like, of, like, you can do anything you can be whatever you want. All, all the world is yours. <laughs> you know, reach. It's like a, where our lives were like one giant motivational poster, like, you know, reach for the moon and you'll land among the stars. Right. With but hanging off of a fucking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, oh, you're one paw away from destiny. You're like, oh, yeah, you see this cat hanging on for dear life. But all right. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. the message you want to send me. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. But then like, you know, at the same time, that we were being told that it was really like the reality of that, like didn't live up to it because it's like all this systemic stuff was happening. And, and I know for my parents, especially like our, my parents really wanted me to be the living embodiment of like the, the stuff that they had gone through. And we all want to do that in some capacity, right? Like we all want our kids to have a better life than we had, right? Like every parent, like if they're an okay parent wants that for their kids, but I think like when you, when you put a lot of that pressure on your own child to be like, you're the manifestation of everything that I'm going to do right in this world, that's a lot of pressure on a little kid, right? That's a, a big uh, expectation to live up, live up to. And so I think that like 
I could really see that as I got older. And it was at like a, probably when I was like, I want to say eight years old when my younger brother was born that like things started to be a little unsettling in my relationship with my parents and, and as a child and just in the structure of my family um, in that like a lot of the cracks started to show. And that was when I first was like, oh, like maybe things are not as I've been told that they are and maybe things are actually like not great. And it was around that time that I started having a lot of mental health issues, even as young as like eight and nine with feeling like, oh my God, like this is an impossible standard to live up to. And, and, and that I felt like I was very different from kids around me and it didn't make a lot of sense as to why that I felt so different and that I was so different. And I think that around when I was like, I want to say nine or 10, I started getting like pretty depressed. And those kind of mental health issues or those kind of moments in a parent-child relationship can go one of two ways. Um, And the first way is like that that parent has like, wants to understand and has a lot of compassion for that. And I think the second way is that parent gets really freaked out. Yeah. And and unfortunately, like I had, even though my parents did want to understand, I think that my mom was so freaked out that she didn't know how to appropriately respond. Um, And so I ended up getting sent to therapy and went through like years and years and years of really intensive therapy that included being like medicated against my will. That led to a lot of resentment and a lot of issues in how I saw myself and how I you know, had secure attachments and in how I related to my, to my family and to, you know, love and myself in general. Um, and a lot of that manifested in really unhealthy ways. And, and I think like when I think on, on how I viewed myself as a child and, and then as a young adult and my mental health issues, it's kind of like the chicken and the egg. Like I'm like, which came first? Like the trauma came before the eating disorder or the eating disorder came before the trauma or the depression. Like, you know, it's like hard to pinpoint like which thing manifested the other things. Mm. Yeah. I, yeah, I mean, I, so many things to, to approach with that. And I think to some degree, and I did like one year of psychology, so don't quote me on this, but the one thing I took <laughs> away from it, um, the one thing I took away from it was this whole um, idea about different types of intelligences where because someone is struggling in one area of intelligence doesn't mean that they're dumb in the other areas. That means that they can mm. probably excel in another area. So for example, someone could have poor spatial intelligence, right? They could look at the room and be like, I don't know the square foot. I don't know where to put things, blah, blah, blah. But they can have really, really, really high levels of interpersonal intelligence. And basically what I loved about that whole notion and the result and the theory was like, no one by any standard has a disability. It's more about the fact that they are excelling in one area where one area is not. So, yeah. and I was like, that's, that's, a, that's an interesting concept. But then again, our society deems smart in one area. And I'm just like, listen, take into account that there are many different skill sets. Just because it doesn't fit in your box as a society doesn't necessarily mean you need to classify that person as, you know, silly or or not as smart. So that was like one thing I took away from my psychology that even made me feel comfortable because I was a shitty test taker. I, w- I knew I was smart, but something about time and the pressure, I would always get like subpar grades. And I just yeah. couldn't process quickly. Um, and I knew I was smart, but I was going to get into these classes that were like, okay, well, based upon the grade that you got on this standardized test, you're going to be put into this class. And I'm like, wait, this doesn't seem right. So I, I even struggled with that too. It was just like the test taking, the processing of that and being timed wasn't something that was going to showcase my intelligence. And I struggled a lot with that growing up too. So, so I totally feel you. And just even growing up in that, you know, the time that we did and, and, you know, to that point, you know, my dad put a lot of pressure on me to really be, you know, if it's not perfect, don't even talk to me. <laughs> like, yeah. 
If you didn't get this, don't even talk to me. If you didn't get an A plus plus the extra credit, don't even tell me that you got an A. Like you should, you should be aspiring to more. And that type of pressure, to your point, manifests in different areas. Like I was watching this movie um, or this series called uh, Jenny and Georgia, and the little girl in the film or in the series, she wants to basically be so perfect that she actually inflicts harm on herself when she yeah. feels like she's not. And, and yeah. that to me just like screams like how much pressure society, parents, people put on kids and they don't know what's going to happen when that bedroom door closes with the kid and how much that affects them and it can manifest into a disorder. So And I, and I think that like our society doesn't do very well with anything that is right or left of totally average, right? Like, mm. you know, like we don't deal well with deviations, as you said, in intelligence or deviations in, a, in, in terms of like, you know, our society is really afraid of emotions, right? Our society is really afraid of anything that isn't just like, keep the status quo, right. keep it calm, you know, keep it right and tight, <laughs> you know, that we really struggle in. And that's in terms of like, you know, exactly what you're saying, like different forms of intelligence or different abilities. It's like, you know, our society is very much built around like the norm. Um, and we don't handle things that are outside of the norm very well when it comes to emotions or when it comes to trauma or when it comes to learning. Um, and, and I think that that's really hard. And I think, I think people and kids especially are way more affected by that than we really realize these days. But I think now more than ever, people are realizing what, uh, how much that has affected us, how much that is affecting our kids. Um, you know, I think that that that's a really burgeoning field that's, that's happening right now. Yeah, for sure. And I know that, um, you're a big fan and I'm a big fan of this person as well. Glendon Doyle, who, you know, openly spoke about, you know, her struggles with eating disorder and, and I remember she was doing um, an interview with Oprah and there was an exercise that she was talking about with other moms. And I guess the exercise was like, write 26 things that you don't know about me, right? And her number five straight up was that I miss, you know, alcohol and I miss having this disorder just as much as I miss like having an abusive husband if I did have one. Like I yearn, I, I long for it, I yearn for it. And what I really appreciate about that fact is the fact that she was so truthful in that, in that moment and nobody, and I mean nobody in her mom circle knew how to respond at first, at first. And then funny enough, she said that she kept getting emails from other moms privately and said, and these mothers were like confessing like, yeah, I'm on the brink of divorce. My parents are facing, um, you know, foreclosure on their home. I'm on the verge of a mental breakdown. And it was just the fact that she shared her truth in that space that it opened up the truth doors for everybody else to just stop the bullshit and just share and be courageous yeah. about sharing. Because someone could have a similar feeling on something else, but it just makes you feel less alone in the world. So I, I totally give her credit um, where credit is due because she's just a, a fierce cheetah, as her book would say in Untamed. Yeah, you know, we, we love some Glennon, uh, some Glennon Doyle around these parts. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, for sure. I love her so much. So, you know, you, you spoke about your, your eating disorder and, and the way that that pressure and everything that you were experiencing kind of led that. Um, led you to that. So did you have sort of moments um, where you felt like, okay, this is my breaking point um, at this moment, you know, as you were kind of going through all of these things, did you have that moment? Like, this is, this is the moment, this is my breaking point. And what did that look like for you? How did that show up for you? Well, I mean, yeah, definitely. I mean, I feel like I, you know, you, you just mentioned, you know, kind of addiction and I feel like, you know, I consider having the intruder to be an addiction because you're addicted to control and you're addicted to, you know, manipulating your body. Um, I, I've, and anyone who struggles with addiction or mental health knows that there's so many breaking points. Mm -hmm. There's so many, there's so many of them. It's even hard to recount. Um, 
And I think that there's like, there's moments where you're like, oh, this is the breaking point. And then it's like, still not. Mm-hmm. There's moments where you're like, this is the lowest of the low. And then you're like, oh, it's not even below this lowest of low. There's a layer of shit and then concrete. And then there's a low beneath that low, right? right. Like, um, but I think, you know, I think that, you know, if you have, if you have addiction or you have an eating disorder, you're never past it. You, you will always have it. And every day is a choice to live with it and to not give into it. Mm -hmm. And so I think like, you know, for me, I've, I've had phases of that throughout my whole life, right? Like, I can't say that there was like one moment that there was like a turnaround where I was like, this is it. Like, this is the one, but I've definitely had moments where I was like, I got to make a change. Like I've, I've, I have to, I want to choose to be well. Um, and that work isn't something that happened and then was over. It was like, I chose that in different ways and in different phases throughout my life. Like I had to choose it in healing my relationship with my mom. I had to choose it in healing my relationship to my brain. I had to choose it in healing my relationship, um, with society. Um, and that's happened in different, in different parts of my life and in different capacities, especially like, you know, when I had kids, you know, like when, when we had my first son and my wife carried my son, but when, when my son was about to be born, I was like, I never want my child to see me treating myself like this because I wouldn't ever want them to think it's okay for them to treat themselves like this. Mm-hmm. And that was like a big aha moment. Was I, was I done at that point? Did I turn around and like, then for the rest of my life, I was like, eating disorder, gone, mental health issues solved. No, of course not. Right. <laughs> there were, there were plenty of other, like, you know, um, there were plenty of other aha moments and there's always, there's always aha moments. I just, I just had an aha moment. Like, two days ago. <laughs> so, you know, I was reading this book called I'm Diosa by Christine Gutierrez, and she actually um, is a guest on this show. And she was talking about her um, 12-step program that she was a participant in. Um, and I love that slogan as part of what AA is, which is let us love you until you can love yourself again. And just kind of being that perfect segue into this next question, what kind of support did you have as you were navigating your new sense of awareness and, and how did that show up for you? What was that support system like? Yeah. I mean, I, I have to say like, I, I had to seek out a support system. I had to create a support system. I mean, listen, that's part of the reason why I became a yoga teacher is, you know, I, you know, I started practicing yoga when I was a teenager and it was, and I started practicing yoga when I was like 14 or 15 years old. And it definitely helped me with a lot of body issues that I was working through. And, you know, initially it was kind of just like, that's, that's the thing about having an eating disorder or, you know, having any kind of like mental health problems is a lot of times the things that you find to support you end up just like playing into your eating disorder. So initially I got into yoga and I was like, I was like, Oh, this is great. Like I, this is like another workout, like, great. This is awesome. And then I was like, you know, yoga kind of like catches you. And I was like, I was like, Oh shit, no, it's fixing me. Damn it. Damn it. (laughs) Like, (laughs) no, no wrong, wrong, abort, abort. Um, but you know, I found really amazing yoga teachers and I found really amazing yoga communities. And as I started to grow up and as I started to see the cost that my eating disorder was having in my life and the cost that continuing to live this way was having in my life. And I think, you know, to to go back to your point about what were those like kind of breaking points, you know, when I was a senior in college, I, by the time I was a senior in college, I was so deep in my eating disorder and so deep in my struggles with my own identity, both as as a woman, as, as a Jewish person, as a queer person, I had like come out to my family a few years earlier, uh, as you know, um, I just like a human being walking through this world. Um, you know, my senior year was like the year, like I was hospitalized for my eating disorder. I, you know, like I was so sick. I almost didn't graduate college. Um, 
And that was also when I really found yoga, like fully found it. And I was like, I think if I keep practicing this, I think it's going to help me figure out how to heal. I don't even know what that looks like yet. I don't even know what that means. And even if I want it a hundred percent, but I, I know that if I keep doing this, like something good is going to happen. And so the support that I found was, was through really amazing teachers who pass on this practice in a really healing and trauma-informed way. And that's what made me want to become a teacher because I was like, we need more of these people. If, if I am this feeling this and this is my experience, then there only needs to be like more of this. Yeah. I, I, I totally agree with you. And, and just, you know, it's so interesting that you're in the, when you're in the midst of like the struggle and it gets to the point where it becomes unbearable and then you're kind of in this spot where you're like, I'm searching for an answer. I'm searching for some ways to cope. And then I always feel that there's always these angels on earth that'll help you along your way, no matter what. And it starts off really, really small, but it has a way of making such a big and deep impact on your life um, for the long term and for the better. So I always feel like there's always these little angels or little people that are always kind of coming in as teachers, as friends, even if it's just a complete stranger, um, that kind of just gives you that seed of hope that you need to know that you're on the path to healing. So it sounds like yoga was, was a big part of it. And the teachers that were teaching you were a huge part of that. So, yeah. And I, and, and you know what, I also like want to say that I also had shitty yoga teachers Mm -hmm. that, that helped me recognize the really good ones. And I found a spiritual community um, in a new way of interpreting my Jewish identity. I found a queer community. And I, I have to say, finding a queer community and finding an activist and an ally community was really huge for me in healing my eating disorder because it helped me feel validated as a, as a person, as an Mm -hmm. overall person. And I think that that's like critical. I think that human beings need to have like multiple supportive communities. You know, it's like, how, how limiting are we that we're like, let's have this like one community. It's like, no, you need communities for all the different parts of yourself. There's so many different parts of yourself that need to be supported by community care. Right. Like, and you need multiple. It's like, it's the same way that like, and you probably have these too. Like, you know, I have female friends. Um, that like are like you know I want my partner to be like my best friend and my this and my that and do this with me and it's like no man <laughs> no like yeah it's a great to have a partner that's so many things for you but like don't you have different best friends that you do different things with like Absolutely. it's right like we need multiple sources and and we deserve multiple sources of support and community in our lives yeah and I think we can all pull from different people and their different experiences that help to enrich our lives. Like I yeah. of this, um, this online community that was led by a therapist and he's, I would call it, yeah, by trade, he's a therapist, but he's more of like a spiritual teacher. And he said, and it, Oh, this always stayed with me um, for months. And he said that there is one sort of, I guess, definition of happiness, like one real result. And it's a combination of two things. When you find out who you are and your identity, and then you have the courage and the bravery to profess that to the world. Yeah. Yeah. Ooh. Oh, and those are big, big pieces of your life. You find out, you go through these like layers and layers and dig into yourself and just to say, and then also kind of dispel some things that you thought you were for earlier in your years. And then you're like, well, this doesn't resonate with me anymore. So I got to drop that off. And then you arrive at this person that you are. And then having the courage to like stand in front of people and just say, I'm this and this and this and this and this. And I don't need your external validation to validate my worth on top yeah. of that. Yeah. And that to me, I'm like, I'm still getting to that road. I see it, but I'm kind of like, yeah, that, that is that is the level of happiness and contentment that you need to have in your life. And I think we all want that. It's just that our roles look different in reaching that. And sometimes it's a longer road for others. Um, so yeah, I, I totally agree with that. Yeah. And I think, you know, like, I think that 
for me, especially, you know, part of, part of like, I wasn't even ready for happiness. Like you just like, you were talking about happiness. I wasn't even ready for happiness. When I first like started, I was like happiness. I think that is something that's possible for me before I could even get to happiness. I needed to get to healing. Mm. You know, like I, like I didn't even know what happiness looked like. Um, and, and I think that like having, having supportive communities and having support in a lot of different forms helped me be like, Oh, like happiness is even possible. Yeah, absolutely. 1000%. So, you know, we're, you went through this like cocoon stage and then you're, you're sort of building this new foundation where you're really, um, sort of arriving at this space where you're like, this is Beck, this is what I stand for, this is who I am. And then I kind of love to call this area like your spiritual GPS, like kind of like that spiritual intuitive direction that you started to take to really sort of shift that paradigm in your life and direct it into a more purposeful way that's in alignment with who you are. So for you, Beck, and can you tell the listeners, like what steps did you take to really shift that paradigm in your life? And I know you started taking yoga classes, you started becoming really enveloped in the yoga community, but what other steps after that did you take to shift the paradigm in your life and really direct it in a more purposeful way? Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely, I I got, I mean, number one, I got really real with myself. Um, I had to like start practicing some really profound radical honesty, um, I had to, and I had to go back, like the paradigm in my life was a lot of inherited trauma. The paradigm in my life was realizing how different I was from other people and also finding supportive communities that, that did reflect back to me, um, my value and my worth. And so for me, the paradigm was like, I had to shift the whole, the whole damn paradigm. Am I allowed to curse? Am I allowed to say the F word? Well, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> I just shift the whole fucking paradigm. <laughs> um, and so like what, you know, like, and, and it's so interesting because now so many years later, you know, I, I it's constantly shifting. Um, but I think like the biggest well, it's constantly shifting and, and I think that I'm constantly re-understanding how big the paradigm was, right? Mm. Like how deep I was in it and still am in it. And so like, sometimes I shifted that paradigm a little bit and I thought, oh, well, this, that's it, right? It's not, that's it. I moved it. I moved it. <laughs> and, and then I'd be like, oh no, I literally just changed like one tiny part of it. And I still have all this work to do like over here. Like, I'll just like to give you an example, you know, like I, I had to, you know, this summer I was doing this activity. I was doing this business training for, for my business. And part of it was like reframing our relationship with money. Right. And it's like something that's like, so seems so innocuous, seems like, so like, you know, I would have nothing to do with like my eating disorder, have nothing to do with like my relationship with my parents had nothing to do with any of that. And I'm like doing this like exercise and it's like, how, how was your relationship with money? Like as a child and all of a sudden I'm like sitting there in tears and I'm like, Oh no, (laughs) I'm like, here's this whole part of this that I haven't even looked at yet. Here's this whole part of my scarcity mentality. Here's this whole part of my control mentality. Here's this whole part of my lack of abundance mentality that's not even from me. It's from my grandparents coming to America and, you know, having nothing. And that's been passed down to me through my parents. And now I see how that manifests and how I need to control things and how I um, have to stockpile things and how I'm afraid that nothing's ever going to be enough. And that shifts the paradigm. And so you know, I think that like the main thing that does constantly shift the paradigm is like continuously and always being in the work of understanding both yourself and understanding your place in the world and understanding how you relate to other people. And if you're constantly doing that, then the the paradigm will shift. It might not all shift at once. It definitely won't, but it'll shift continuously over time. 
Yeah, I, I totally agree with you on that. And I think, you know, a lot of the times we think that we are kind of like the other side of healing to the point where we won't get triggered by our past in a lot of ways. But, you know, sometimes when I recognize that I still have more work to do is when I am triggered by certain experiences that literally you would think you have no connection to anything that you experienced in your past, but it could be like the one simplest thing and it takes you out and you start to question like, how much healing do I have to do? Do I have to reassess this? You know, all this other stuff. And to that point, it's always a work in progress. It's always like this road to healing. It, it doesn't always have a finish line, you know, like, yeah, it does. Yeah. But then there could be things that could be very triggering to you. It may not be as catastrophic, right? It may be kind of like, all right, this is a little bump, but it's still a yes. bump that I feel. Yes. <laughs> and it yes. won't remind me that I still got more work to do, you know? Yes. So, yeah. Like yeah. I don't have, you know, the, the times where I like, breakdown sobbing are not as frequent as like when I first was on this healing journey and exactly what you said there's still like those bumps and I think that like that has also what has helped me in in shifting that paradigm and what has helped me heal myself is also being like okay I want to take what I've done and I want to take what I see and I want to help other people I want to I want to be become a person of service in this way I see how much affects us. I see how I see how many of these paradigms that need to change. And like I can't just sit back and and wait for that to happen. I have to be part of that happening. And that has helped me that's helped me heal. I believe it. I believe it. And it's it's that call, you know, like everyone has the call. It's just it really comes down to a choice of when you answer it, whether you answer it. And how you step into that, you know, and I feel like anytime that people are starting to kind of shift in a more purposeful way, it's unfamiliar, it's very uncomfortable, right? Because you're so familiar with functioning in one way, and then you start to shift and evolve, and it's uncharted territory. And I know a lot of those times, there's a sense of uncertainty, there's a sense of self-doubt, that may come up or arrive as you start to change that direction. So for you, Beck, and can you tell the listeners, did you feel like a sense of uncertainty or did you have any doubts about the direction of your life? And if so, what gave you that power and that inspiration to overcome the doubts and persevere? Um, only every day, only all the time, <laughs> only all the time, only constantly. Um, yeah. And what, what gives me the power and the inspiration to overcome. Um, I don't, I don't even, I, I think that the one thing that is always my North star, no matter what the externalities are, is that I know that my purpose is, is to help people heal, is to help, is to help overturn these paradigms, is to help shift these narratives that are so toxic to us um, and that are so harmful. And so for me that I, I just always reconnect to that and that helps me make it through anything, no matter what. I love that. So going into this section, um, the new path. So we, we approach like your spiritual GPS where you start to change your direction. We approach this, you know, area of like the questioning, the great questionings. And now you're on this new path. Um, where you're a really successful yoga teacher and, and owner of Luna and Soul. So when you became a yoga teacher back, um, what were your sort of main soul goals? And what I mean by that is like goals that were connected to your soul. Like what what were those? Yeah, I mean, definitely like all the things that we've talked about is, you know, like when I decided to become a yoga teacher, I was like, I see how much this this practice has helped me. I see how much it could help other people. I have to pass it on. It was like, it was like from beyond myself. I was like, I am literally called to pass this on. And the good parts of it, right? Like the parts of it that have been helpful to me and to not, and to take a stand and not pass on the parts of this that have been harmful to me because I want to be the kind of teacher that I needed um, because I know that there's so many people that need a teacher like that. Yeah. 
And then when you just became just like a yoga teacher, you were just starting out probably what now, 12, 12 years ago, you probably have your, you were just starting off as a teacher. Did you feel like, you know, at, you know, in those moments over the course of those 10 years, you were living out your purpose or were you like craving more? Like, were you craving more expansion and more reach? Like, how, how I mean, I'm work? always, yeah, I'm always craving more because I'm me. <laughs> I'm, I'm like, I'm like the constant, Jen, I think you know this. I'm like the constant, like, what's next? Okay. Like, yeah. what else can I do? How, who else can I serve? Like, what else can I create? What's the next iteration of that? How can I know more? How can I be better? How can I do better? Um, and so, you know, in the very beginning, I didn't always, I will say, I always knew what my purpose was. I didn't always know what the logistics of it were going to look like, but that's also, I felt that that has been okay because I felt like as I have evolved, my purpose has evolved. And as I have evolved in my understanding of myself and evolved in my understanding of the world and the paradigms that are at play and the structures and systems are at play and what I'm up against it. I have changed. It has changed and clarified my purpose. I feel like in the very beginning, I had this very nebulous understanding of what it was going to be like to, to do this work. And now I have like a really clear understanding and clarity of purpose that like has taken years to distill. I couldn't have done this this way you know, 10 years ago. Right. Right. And, and, and to that point, you know, I think oftentimes when we get that call to do something that, you know, is, is bigger than us, you know, at first we don't have a sort of clear direction and a clear road on how to get there. We know that we have to answer the call and we're just kind of like, all right, there's a, and I, and someone said this to me that helped me kind of relax my um, over-controlling mind. <laughs> Cause I'm like you where I'm like, uh -huh. you know, I, I would accomplish something and I would literally be like, cool, check the box. What's next? <laughs> like, <I check> the <laughs> box. Even when someone gives me a compliment, I'm like, cool. I thought, you know, thank you so much. Moving on. Like I, I never would <laughs> sit in a laboratory state. I would just be like, okay, cool. Let me keep looking forward. Um, and a lot of those times, you know, it's, it's good to kind of take a step back, but what I realized as we start to shift and something that someone said to me is like, Jen, you have to be in between the space of making things happen and letting things happen. Mm, that's a good one. I was like, oh, so it's part your action, but it's also part of you surrendering and letting and letting your purpose play out the way that the universe or God has designed it to play out. And I was just yeah. like, yep, that's it. That's it. So I, it always stayed with me when that person um, said that because they were like, you can't have all this control. You can't dictate the outcome. I'm like, what are you talking about? But yeah. So. Yeah. And I couldn't, and I couldn't have, and no one can, I couldn't have, I couldn't be who I am now without just like time and without things just kind of playing out. Right. Like we learn from just allowing things to play out. Um, you can't, you kind of can't rush your evolution like that. You know, you can't rush. You, you kind of have to let things unfold for you in that way. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So can you talk about a time where you knew that your work transcended the human experience and that you were carrying out your spiritual assignments? Can you talk about any stories or maybe like maybe any interactions with the student where you were like, you got the confirmation, like this work is I'm doing is on a soul level. Oh, I mean, all the time, all the time. I have taught students who's, I, you know, I have students who have children that died of drug overdoses. I have um, students who have lost parents and loved ones. I have students that have struggled with like the depths of despair. And I also have students that have had unbelievable triumph and, and victory. And I see it all the time. It's like, I constantly have it confirmed for me in so many ways, mm -hmm. all the time, all the time. That's, that's, that's awesome. So we're, we're getting to those, um, what I like to call the section, the moments of fulfillment. So you are a successful business owner, and I know that this is no easy feat, especially since we're going through the pandemic and kudos to you for keep thriving and shining and showing up. 
Um, sometimes I know, you know, just being a small business owner, it, it could get very challenging, very tough, and you keep showing up and, and batting at a thousand. So, so kudos to you for that. Um, and you're, you know, a yoga studio owner of two locations. And I love what I love about your yoga collective that it has inclusivity and acceptance at its core. Um, and I know you're also a doula. So do you feel like, you know, you're fulfilling your purpose or you're like, this is just the cusp of what I'm doing. And I'm like, I'm looking to put more labels, more title, more accomplishments on, on Tibet. Oh, I mean, you know, like one of the things I think that, that I, I like to let play out and I love to allow some space for in my own mind is many years ago, I made an agreement with myself that if I didn't end up working for the UN, if I didn't end up writing a bestseller, if I just lived a simple life as a parent and as a yoga teacher, that that would be okay. And at the same time, I'm still going to work towards some of the bigger goals that I have that I feel are part of my purpose in life. And so yeah, I have really big stuff I'm working on. I have, you know, as, as we kind of talked about before, like as I evolve in my understanding of the world, like my purpose evolves and, and at the same time, I always like to come back to a place of humility that there are people that don't end up on the New York Times bestseller list that have a profound impact on the world. There are people that don't have a Wikipedia entry about them that still have a profound impact on the world. Um, right. You know, so I, I feel like I feel like right now where I am, I'm right in the work. I'm right in the work. I'm doing it. I'm and I just want to keep going. And I, and, you know, I can always, I can always do better, you know, because I can always learn more and I can always try new ways and I can always have a better understanding of things. Uh, and I can always get other people enrolled and other people on board. Um, and I think that's also, that's part of being a good business owner. That's part of being a good ally. That's part of being yeah. a good teacher. Um, but yeah, like I, I try to keep that balance, um, you know, of like, it's, so it's okay if I'm acting from a place of like working in my purpose and, and doing this work and being in this, um, then like this would also have been enough. That's like, that's a, that's a very, that's like a, a bit of a Jewish saying <laughs> it would have been enough <laughs> Passover <laughs> coming up. It would have been enough. Like, I'm like, it would be enough, right. It would be enough. This would have been enough. Um, and this, and this would have been a beautiful impact that I had and I'm okay with, with wherever it goes from here. Yeah, I think, um, and, you know, Oprah is near and dear to my heart, but she said something um, in one of her Super Soul Sunday podcasts that always um, touched upon things for me. And she says, you know, I don't really believe in luck as just something that just happens. She feels like luck is when preparation meets opportunity. Mm -hmm. So. I was like, hell yeah, Oprah. Absolutely. And that's what luck is when preparation meets opportunity. So the fact that you're already preparing, it's just the opportunity just needs to come through. And that is you being quote unquote lucky, right? Or living out your divine purpose on this. Planet. I love so. that. Thanks, Oprah. I mean, she, she, yeah. she sure knows her shit. <laughs> she does. She, she sure does. I, I can never like, you know, Anytime she drops some jewels, I'm like, God damn it, Oprah. Like, I know. Can you just have one day that you're off? Like, just one day. <laughs> one day. One day. But she never does. So, um, and you are a wife and a mother to two young boys. Um, so can you talk about how being a partner to your wife, Lauren, and being a mom plays, how that plays a huge role in the person that you've become and continue to become? Yeah. Uh, I mean... The moment that you are responsible fully for another human being walking this earth, it definitely takes you out from thinking that you're the sun and everyone revolves around you because you quickly realize that you revolve around other people. Um, mm -hmm. And being a being, listen, being a partner in any capacity, being in relationship with people will always force growth. Like 
being in relationship to my wife and, and being a partner to my wife, like that's a source of huge personal growth and of course support. But you know, it being anytime you're in relationship with any human being, it's going to help you spiritually evolve. Right. Because we learn from, from being in relationship to others. Like there's so many things that I can't see my own blind spots, right? If I could, then they wouldn't be my own blind spots. So the more I'm in relationship with other people and especially as a, as a mother, um, it makes you really think about, you know, what legacies you're passing on, but any, all of my relationships help me grow and evolve in, in who I am. Mm, that, that is so, so true. I, my therapist always says that they're like, when you get into relationship with anyone, whether it be a friend, a lover, you know, partner, it, that, that is where like your true work goes into action. <laughs> yep. You can't, and, and especially if you're in a, especially if you're in an honest, transparent, raw relationship with that person, it could expose things and it could really be, you know, another way for you to recognize things. And you're like, okay, these are the things I need to work on. So, you know, my therapist always says that. Um, and I fully, fully, fully agree. So, yeah. Well, this is actually my favorite portion of the podcast, which is what I like to call quick to the heart. So these are very quick fire round questions that the answers are usually not more than a word or a sentence. So Beck, I have a question. Are you ready? Yes, I'm ready. <laughs> All right. Awesome. So question number one, what is your favorite quote? Uh, it definitely will change uh, month to month, but right now it is, uh, you can go wider or you can go deeper, but you can't do both at once. Ugh. So good. Yeah. <laughs> so good. What is, or who is your biggest source of inspiration? Uh, right now I really love me some Rachel Rogers, although Glennon Doyle, who we mentioned earlier is always like, she's like the queen of inspiration, but Rachel Rogers right now, uh, who is an amazing, um, she's an amazing black seven figure business owner. She coaches other women and she just like, she's so inspirational to me right now. Amazing. Best advice you ever received or the best lesson you've ever learned. Ooh, I hope I haven't learned my best lesson yet. <laughs> I hope my best lesson is still ahead of me. Nice. Nice. Or best or best advice you've ever received. Best advice I ever received. Um I don't know. I've I've luck, you know, I'm I'm kind of a dum dum. I've gotten a lot of really good advice in my life. I don't know if I could pick a best. Yeah. Yeah, we always get what I like to call those like little threads of, of advice along the way and they and they always get incorporated into who we are. So yes. totally totally happens. I probably would have a very similar le similar answer to you where I'm like, uh, there's been many. And I'm yeah. sure it will pop up when when an, an experience happens. I'm like, oh, I gotta remind myself of that. So totally. What advice would you give to someone who feels that they have fallen short in life and cannot see their true light? Uh, I would say comparison is the source of all suffering. Um, truly, truly, like, don't compare yourself to other people. You can only see one tiny speck of the iceberg. Um, reconnect to yourself. Keep going. Um, and, you know, you you cannot live your life by looking at what someone else's looks like. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. What are you most proud of? Oh, I am, I'm most proud of myself, of who I have become. I'm proud to be me. I'm, I am just proud to be me. And of course, I'm proud of my two boys. Yes. And last but not least, what are you most looking forward to with your work and your personal life? <sighs> Ooh, I'm, uh, I am most looking forward to, well, number one, I'm looking forward to this pan, pan, pandemic being over, to this uh, Ponder replay being over, this Panini ending. Uh, and I, I'm looking forward to just like being with people again, just being with people again and seeing what amazing magical things that we can create when we can be back with each other again. Mm, love that. 
And that, that is the, the perfect ending. So back for our listeners, please give them your website and social media handles to follow you and Luna and Soul. And, you know, I, I definitely encourage everyone to take a class. If you're in the Long Island area at Luna and Soul, they have wonderful teachers, including Beck, that teaches there. So give the listeners the website, social media handles of where to follow you and your business. Yeah, so we are, uh, I, my personal Instagram is Rebel Yogi Mama Fox. You can find me there on Instagram and you can find our studios, our collective at Luna and Soul, S-O-U-L, Yoga. Uh, that's on Instagram as well. And our website is www.lunaandsoulyoga.com. And I would love for you to follow us. And if you don't live in the Long Island area, we also have lots of online offerings so that you can practice from anywhere. Exactly. Point point taken. And she's an awesome doula. And I know that there are so many um, uh, folks that are pregnant (laughs) with their pandemic baby. So definitely look up back and yeah, definitely take you know, a class, whether it be online, virtual, or in person, because, you know, what the Yoga Collective is really doing is really, you know, being primed for activism and, and really stepping into this loci um, mindset, which is where we're all beings everywhere, happy, be happy and free. And may the thoughts and words and actions of my life contribute in some way to the happiness and to the freedom for all. She walks it, she talks it, and her Yoga Collective also does the same. So thank you, Beck, for um, just being on the show and sharing your wonderful and beautiful and raw story. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in to this episode of Open Heart, Raw Story. I hope you were inspired and felt moved by the story you heard today. If you enjoy this episode and want to listen to more, please subscribe to this podcast and follow Open Heart, Raw Story on Instagram and Twitter. Until then, loves, take care of yourself and lead your lives with an open mind, and most importantly, with an open heart. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this guided meditation for Open Heart, Raw Story. On this episode featuring Beck, A theme that kept coming up was the power of community and how it can help guide and inspire you to heal. We all have experienced some levels of trauma, of hardships, and challenges in our own rights. And it is our power of our community and our village that can help guide and or inspire us to heal. So sit up nice and tall and close the eyes. Lengthen through the crown of the head and just start to take some deep breaths in through the nose and out of the nose. And as you're taking some deep breaths in through the nose and out, Maybe you start to think that healing requires you to feel and honor your emotions and also understand that healing is never linear. However, with the help of our community, it can give us the toolkit to help us tap into our brave selves to face our emotions. And as you're taking some deep breaths in through the nose and out, maybe you start to think about this notion that we are all powerful individually. But when we join in community, we unite our individual powers to become one, one force, As you're taking some deep breaths in through the nose and out, maybe you start to think about this idea that the fabric of hope is stitched together with unity 
acknowledges the necessities for overcoming any situations. And as you're taking your last deep breaths in through the nose and out, maybe you can start to think about and take inventory and notice the power of your community and how they help to guide and inspire you to heal. And on the flip side, how you have helped to contribute to the people in your community to do the same. We are all hardwired for connection. And we have so much power when we join and unite as one. And when we start to heal ourselves we can heal each other and we can heal the world. Take a nice deep breath in through your nose and exhale out. Allow yourself to come back into this body and this space. And when you are ready, gently open the eyes. I thank you all for joining me for this guided meditation. I hope you guys have a wonderful day or evening. And most importantly, I hope you lead your lives with an open mind and an open heart. Take care.